All right. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this week, we have Tim Hines. Tim Hines is responsible for the lease portfolio and is in charge of the lease department at the Kosh Auto Group. Um, Tim, do you want to introduce yourself? Basically, uh, my title being be an in-house lease manager. We have about a 500-unit portfolio that's uh, predominantly commercial product, but a mixture of, of used uh, retail, new retail, um, and a bunch of different equipment and such. So we manage that, myself along with Leanne McMorton. Um, and I also sell a lot of that product, the majority of it that goes into the portfolio. So I'll be selling uh, new car, used car, uh, boats, trailers, drills, you name it. Uh, we've got it in there in the portfolio. How long have you worked for the Kosh Auto Group? Uh, I think it's going on 15 years now uh, that I've worked with them. And uh, new, I've known the owners through different uh, a different industry for probably another 16 years prior to that. What was the name but, of that company? Uh, Dwayne owned Dwayne Kosh owned two uh, video stores, rental stores that were called Video Movie House, um, and he also owned a leasing company. The VHS were very expensive; they're around a hundred dollars a copy. So a lot of these smaller stores couldn't afford to buy as many as they needed uh, when these movies first came out. So Dwayne actually uh, pioneered a, a leasing business that uh, would lease these movies uh. to them five weeks at a time. So that's how I got to know him. So I basically sold him movies. Um, for a long time and then at one point we had a small sales office and we actually operated that out of a building that uh, that he was leasing so uh, obviously got, got to know him very well yeah oh so the sorry I, I i had a completely misunderstanding i thought i thought that Dwayne owned that distribution company but no Dwayne owned a leasing company that would lease these videotapes that were like hundreds yeah. of dollars to, to at the time exactly and a very successful company along with his video stores so he became a pretty uh, a decent sized buyer so the studios catered to him um and of course they did that you know through us so one of the uni unique things about that industry was as they'd uh, as we'd sell this product not only would we get a a screening copy of everything in advance that was coming out to screen to, to see what we thought of the movie so we could sell it better but they'd also give us sales incentives i mean you were constantly taking home blenders, toasters, microwaves, TVs, you name it as incentives yeah. for selling it uh, back in the good old days when that was happening in sales. But now it's a little different world, that's so, for sure. So so tell me how you lease a videotape. <laughs> so basically they're around $100 a pop. So Dwayne would say, okay, if you want this brand new movie that's just come out, say um, Goodfellas, it just come out. If you want to lease it for five weeks to rent to your customers, your price for those five weeks is going to be $70. So $30 cheaper than it would be if they bought it themselves. Um, if you took it in the second term, five weeks later, you could get it for say $30 or $40, et cetera. So we just set up a, a system like that and they could determine how many copies they would want to lease rather than own them outright. Um, because what would happen typically back then is they would run them for a certain period of time and then start selling off their VHS copies and only keep a few as the movie uh, uh, dwindled in in popularity. So, obviously, in that industry, you saw a bunch of transitions from formats from like from VHS to DVD to Blu-ray, and then obviously we all know where that story ends with streaming. H how did how did you how did you handle all of those transitions? Um. You know, it's not a lot different than the automotive industry going through the electrical uh, change that we're going to see pretty soon, but I'm sure we'll touch on that. But it was it really just rolled with it. The the one neat thing about when DVD uh, was taking over for VHS, suddenly VHS was dropping in price rapidly from the $100 a copy and, and coming down to what we call direct-to-sale to the consumer as well. 
um, which was always around, but it was only with specific movies like the Disney classics and such. You could buy those for like $30 at the grocery store, but not everything else. That started changing. And then DVD obviously being at a price point around anywhere from 15 to, you know, $28. Um, it became a different way of thinking for the video stores. They could carry more product, sell it off that much quicker, previously viewed, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, but most of the transition was, he just kind of rolled with it. I think that's what most people have to do in business and uh, and take it as it comes and, and try to find your niche. So. I guess so when the price came down because of the formats, how did you, how did the leasing business still exist or did it not exist? Yeah, that was a thing. And that's really when it, it started changing for Dwayne and, and video movie host drastically because most of the stores could then afford to, to purchase what they needed. Um, however though, it's, it's funny that the, a lot of his clientele was really small town. Um, and if you look, some of these places still have video rental stores there. So they've still survived because it's obviously, uh, Streaming is not as readily available and cable is not as readily available and, and satellite not as effective as it might be. So mm -hmm. the, some of these stores still exist out there and are still renting videos, amazingly enough. So he still hung on. He's he's a pretty shrewd businessman. He saw the writing on the wall, um, got out of it, sold out to his partner. Um, I ended up dealing with his partner probably for another four or five years um, before, you know, really streaming and the Internet started taking over the business. At which time I decided it was time to uh, to get out of that and try something different. I understand that like uh, that Dwayne saw the right of the wall and obviously like like sold his half of the business, and you were still in that business on the distribution side. So you were working for like Astro Media and Entertainment One, getting these video companies or getting these video store rentals to take on certain titles. Uh, so I have two questions. Like, what are the like like what titles did you dealt with? Because uh, I have a feeling like you dealt with like, like I remember going to like um, movie gallery, and like we had like small small mom and pop shops where where I grew up, and I'm yeah. assuming that's what Dwayne didn't deal with like blockbuster Rogers video. He dealt with like 24 hour video or video spot. These like very small mom and pop shops. That's who exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. He didn't wouldn't have dealt with the major chains. Uh, they kind of dictated their own uh, their own deals a lot of times with the studios, even though that product would still come through our hands. They were setting up uh, direct uh, deals with the specific studios. Um, so Dwayne did deal mostly with those small mom and pops. Uh, interestingly enough, watching the studios, collusion was such a big deal in the fifties. These guys would hardly talk to each other without lawyers in the room. It always shocked me how strange it was that they never negotiated uh, to get things right. That would have been better for all parties uh, involved. But uh, and then I'm seeing that a little bit in the automotive sector with the different brands as well. It's like they don't really seem to communicate very well. It's just a competitive nature uh, of the game. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to watch the correlation between the, the two industries. Um, but yeah, you're right. And the, and the small mom pops were Dwayne's bread and butter. Um, yeah. And he, he got out at the right time for sure. So. Um, yeah. And then just out of curiosity, like what titles did you deal with? Like what are, what are some ones that stick out in your head? You know what? what? Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything that came out from, oh, this is 30 years ago. It started. So but what was your bestseller? Um, yeah, it was had bestsellers, the Disney classics that, that were direct to sale to the consumer. We always sold more of that type of, uh, of product. Um, for sure. You know, the little mermaids of the world and, uh, and that sort of thing. But I think for me, some of the biggest ones, you always fall in love with the ones that, that appeal to you most. So I was a huge Lord of the Rings uh, fan. So when that series came out, I mean, I was over the moon and I got to sell it. Uh, and it did obviously extremely well over the, the three movies. 
And I think the, the coolest thing I ever got out of the industry was they sent out and there's probably only about 50 of them made, but it's a, a large, really nicely framed um, uh, picture of a uh, map of, of Middle Earth. And then it's got a duplicate uh, sword of Stinger, the, you know, Frodo's uh, sword um, mounted on it. And then uh, a metal, I don't know what you'd call it, but basically covers of each one of the DVD uh, cover art uh, mounted on it as well. And a, a nice little plaque saying, thanks for your part in the journey. We couldn't have done it without you. So that's probably my one thing I cherish the most from the industry. Um, I mean, I got a lot of stuff out of it, but that was, that's the coolest one. So that's hung in my wallet, you know, very proudly. Um, but all in all, like everything that came through went through our hands. It's uh, as the DVD took over, we were still selling not as much to the video stores. We still were, but that's when the grocery stores and the drug stores and all these places that were carrying, you know, the best buys of the world were carrying DVDs. We were dealing with them as well. And it just changed the face of uh, suddenly it was uh, a lot more uh, a volume of product going out at a lower price point. So. Cool. Man, that's so, I, I find that very endearing about you, Tim. Um, uh, that you came from that business and then also just like because I can like I can remember myself as a kid and like going to those video stores and like wondering where some of these fucking movies came from and then I also remember the DVDs popping up in like gas stations and like corner stores and like like the supermarket and then that was you yeah it was us and it was it was being there it was the coolest thing so the studio reps would come around to to pitch their wares and i remember i just went through a box of memorabilia that i had and uh some of the weirdest stuff like for example when fight club came out i have this bar a pink bar of soap that's got fight club on it still that i've saved you know i've, I've got all sorts of different trinkets that were uh just little things they'd uh, they put out as these movies came out to, to give you to get you excited about it but yeah. that was the neatest part because the product was always fresh. It was always new. Um, yeah. I, I couldn't imagine being in an industry where the product is stagnant and hasn't changed, you know, really in years. Um, movies, it was always turning over. Something new was coming. And the automotive sector is like that as well. I mean, we always get, you know, every year there's updates to the vehicles, some bigger than others, obviously, each year. But um, I think I'd have a really hard time, you know, if I was selling something that really wasn't uh, wasn't changing much. That's for sure. Okay. The, the last question I'll ask you about uh, about the the movie biz uh, is like so what, let's say you were given like like for Fight Club what was your quota how many of those did you have to pawn off? <laughs> wow, uh, I couldn't remember. Uh, it, it would be wow, that's going back ways trying to remember what kind of numbers it would be when Fight Club came out. It was already I believe DVD. I would like to think that DVD had come through, so we would typically probably be selling you know, a couple thousand copies of it, depending who all we were dealing with. Um, and if any of the studios were shipping, that was Fox, I believe, uh, 20th Century Fox's product, they would just ship direct to a few of the major chains like Blockbuster in some cases, but, you know, two, three, four thousand units. By our Alberta, so I was Edmonton, uh, and there's a Calgary branch as well, we were running anywhere from 10 to $12 million in annual sales um, kind of thing uh, in the heyday, uh, you know, before I left uh, in that kind of neighborhood. So it was a significant, significant amount of uh, a product going out the door. That's for sure. Damn. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll drop the subject. I, I always love that side about you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So you, you're, you're at, you're at the end of that industry, literally. And yeah. you, and streaming has taken over. Netflix has killed Blockbuster. You're looking to pivot. I think you told me once that you were on the verge of just buying a franchise of like a restaurant and and then as luck would have it, Dwayne Kosh offers you a position 
uh, to take over the leasing portfolio. How does that work? Yeah, so basically I had the opportunity to move to Calgary. They were kind of downsizing uh, the Alberta region in the in the video industry. Um, my wife's a bank executive for a long time with a credit union up here, so it didn't make any sense. Um, so I got out of it, and the first thing I started looking at was a couple of different uh, franchises, uh, including um, – I thought right away, like a subway or something like that, but I realized I wasn't gonna be able to afford <laughs> to do that. Started looking at M&M meats, um, uh, a pizza. What the heck is the pizza place that, uh, you put in the oven at home kind of thing. I get the two mixed up. I mean, Papa, Papa John's, John's and yeah. it's the other one. It's, uh, Papa, Papa Murphy's pizza. Started looking at that, but thought, okay, quickly realized, I think I'm just buying myself a, a job and a, and a lot of work. So I wasn't sure what I was going to do if I, I thought I could always fall back on the, on the restaurant to, industry if I wanted to, but that's not great when you have a young family. So Dwayne said, why don't you come sell trucks? I've never been a car guy. I, you know, I'd like anyone else. I think they're interesting and, and, and such, but I was never driven by cars. Uh, like as far as my excitement level went, I was never that eager to be in that business, but the opportunity arose where their lease manager was uh, getting older and going to retire in a few years. So I stepped in, uh, started learning the, uh, learning the business. And, uh, it took about three years, really two years at least before I really knew what I was doing. And then uh, Mel retired shortly thereafter. And now for the last, uh, 13 years or so, 14 years or such, I've been, uh, I kind of managing it and still learning as I go. So what did Mel do? It exact same role I did basically oversaw the portfolio, sold product, um, um, just managed the, the lease portfolio it at that time. We were probably around 200 uh, units in the portfolio. And I think at our peak, uh, Leanne and I had it up over 650. How much um, money How much money is that? Uh, I don't think cautious would like me to say what the revenue is, but um, it's, it's, high, a, though. it's a handsome amount. And it, it's a it's definitely been a, a, a very consistent um, revenue source for the Kosh Automotive Group. Um, you know, with going through some of the difficulties during the, the recession and stuff, 2008, we were still pretty consistent. So, uh, yeah, they, they do well with it. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a good run and hope to continue. We just went through a, a three month deferral program and I'm pretty proud to say probably about 80 of our almost 500 leases, uh, we did three month deferral plans for the customers for, but we're off of that now and it, it went pretty well. So we we look like we're back to normal and we're having some strong months again. So, okay. But I want to dig more into like how the leasing portfolio works. So you have you have a set like portfolio of customers that renew their lease consistently. They consistently, they, yeah. yeah. So so okay, Kosh uh, Ford offers what they call red carpet leasing, and you can lease a vehicle for twenty four months, thirty six, forty eight. All we really do is with the Ford product, um, because we've been having the in house department for so long. Um, they give us money, rebate money that allows us to compete with their interest rates that they're offering at that time. So typically if they're offering really big, um, uh, delivery rebates, but, but higher interest rates, it's not a great time in my world because I need really good lease rates being offered from Ford. Cause then they have to give us more incentive money to match those rates. So we, we roll with that, um, as they do come on board, the customers, and, and lease something, they deal directly with us. The vehicle has to be returned to us. Everything is done through us, the banking and such. So you kind of got a bit of a captive uh, audience. And if you do a good job, which we typically do, they, they you know, keep rolling them over and over um, and stick with you. And then recently, probably over the last six years, 
we've discovered a, a mechanism for cash buyers on the Lincoln side, which there's quite a few of. Um, they're pretty much established people, professionals and such. But there's an opportunity there if we put them into what we call a prepaid 24-month lease, we can take advantage of the, the lease incentive money that we get, save the customer some end money and make a little money on our side as well. And again, they uh, kind of locks them in and they deal with us. So that's been also uh, highly successful for, uh, for Kosh as well. The customer, like the people you deal with are so different from what the showroom deals with. Like- Absolutely. No, and what's kind of really... Uh, you know, satisfying is we get a, we get a bit of everything. Um, so my, my typical customer is a, a mid-sized business owner has probably got, you know, anywhere from three to, you know, to 20 vehicles, uh, out there in the company name. Um, you're typically dealing right with the, uh, the owner of the company and you're the face of the cost. He doesn't want to deal with anybody else. He wants answers directly from you, wants everything taken care of quickly. So you're making decisions, uh, which is great. It's nice to have that ability. Um, so you're dealing with those people. And typically, if you treat them right, they're lifelong customers. And I've got a number of them. And I've built some really fantastic relationships with some really great uh, business owners and nice people. Then we get some of the retail stuff um, where uh, basically I, I have to put on more of the retail hat and do a little bit more of what the guys downstairs do and you know get them out for their test drives and go take a look at colors and and all of that. But we don't do as much of that just because time restraints. Um, and then you get the the offshoots doing uh, some heavy equipment, uh, doing, I've got people who've got boats, uh, snowmobiles, but people that you basically start a relationship with and then you start, you know, branching off into some of this other stuff. And uh, that's, you know, that's always interesting as well. I've been doing a bunch of Argos recently with one of my customers for the pipeline. Um, we had just attempted to do a bunch of mobile bridges. Actually, the heavy equipment rolls over these creeks out in the in the uh, pipeline in the field, and they uh, he wanted me to lease them the bridges that they will roll over on these creeks, and that didn't come through. But uh, but we've done some strange stuff. But no, the best part is the the vast array of different customers that we've we've had um, is uh, has been very satisfying, and it keeps it fresh as well. How has COVID yeah. affected your department? So like everyone else, it affected us quite a bit. Um, right away, we realized there was going to be an issue. Um, Leanne, who, you know, there's really only two of us in the department. Um, she ended up working half days and then working half of those days at home, which made it difficult because a ton of our work is administrative paperwork. Um, so that made it harder. Uh, but of course, sales dipped for a little while uh, in my end. So it allowed me to do a bit more of that uh, paperwork and stuff again and started to try to stay on top. We did, as I mentioned, need to uh, implement a, a deferral program because the other brands and Ford were offering it. So, right, you know, we had customers right away, you know, can I miss my payment? It's like, well, no, but here's what we can offer you. It ended up being three months and uh, basically just had to cover the interest on their lease for that uh, for that month at a time. Um, and that was successful and I think left a pretty good taste in the mouth of a lot of our customers who were, you know, pretty happy that we could offer that for them. Um we saw a dip, but the the most interesting thing was really once they started lifting a little bit of the uh, of the restrictions, the government, it was like a lot of people came out of the woodwork. We got very busy very quickly. Um, they just people wanted something new, wanted to you know feel excited about something. So lo and behold, uh, here they were buying vehicles to the point where you know we're running out of inventory still to this day. Um, we can't keep up on the pickups and uh, and transit vans and a number of other lines. So. It uh, as it as it hit Kosh and our department, um, it's really bounced back quite quite well, and I have to attribute part of that to the Ford line being probably stronger than it's ever been as far as uh, 
as far as our lineup of, uh, of what we're offering with some exciting new stuff that's just coming out. So, yeah, I've heard that from um, a bunch of people in the auto group that like, it doesn't seem like that's what should be happening during the pandemic, but um, yeah, they're seeing the sur- a surge in sales and then a lack of inventory. Yeah. Yeah. With the plants closing down, it certainly, the lack of inventory is big and it's hard to tell a customer, yeah, you can order that, but you're not going to see it till, you know, you know, three, three and a half months from now. It takes the emotion out of it for those retail buyers. For the commercial buyers, it's just another obstacle that they work around and, uh, and it's, uh, you know, we're, we're finding that they're accepting it and, and just moving forward. But certainly our product is selling for the most part on the commercial side prior to even getting, uh, getting to us. If we order something for stock, it's not even getting here before it's already been sold. So, um, you know, and Nancy could attest to that. Her, the fleet numbers are still amazing in that department, uh, considering what's going on out there with the economy. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but, uh, you know, we're, we'll, we'll take it. Yeah. For sure. Um, just, just to kind of go back to something you were, that you mentioned about, um, when people were calling for like deferments and skipping payments, uh, that's one thing your department has to deal with on their own is repos. How does that work? Well, I mean, luckily we like to think we're pretty good with our people and it very rarely has come to the point where we have to go and repossess the vehicle. Um, typically we can, uh, make arrangements with them and, uh, and we don't let them too far out of reach payment wise. Um, and if we realize that they're going to be in a position where they're not going to be able to afford it, we can assist with um, having wholesalers come in and actually get them out of the vehicle rather than us having to, you know, physically go grab it and affect their, uh, their credit and stuff. So, you know, in the time, in the 15 years, we probably only had to repo, oh, I, you know, maybe 50 vehicles. So I'm kind of proud of that. I think. Yeah we do a pretty good job of recognizing as well when these people come on board and we're thinking of taking them on credit wise, certainly, you know, some of them, the credits bullets, others are questionable, but I I like to think we're pretty good at, uh, at identifying individuals who we think we can count on, even though they've been through some bad things, divorces, stuff like that happen. Um, but we've been really good. I think we've, uh, we know our, our clientele pretty well and can tell who we want to be doing business with. Um, you know, there's some guys out there that uh, would like to be doing business with us, unfortunately, that we've, you know, kind of turned away for whatever reason. But um, it's the nature of the game. You're playing with the cautious money and uh, it's a little different than, you know, just sending someone off to forward credit or the bank and you don't have to worry about that money any longer. Uh, for yeah. us, you know, you got to stay on top of it. So, um, and I, I think a huge part of that too, coming from the video and the restaurant business is it's how you treat people. And if you are honest and upfront with them, the whole time you're doing business with them, they tend to be the same way with you. And when they start getting into trouble, they kind of give you, uh, you know, they kind of let you know, it's like, okay, I mean, you know, I don't know if I'm going to make this payment and you start working with them, you know, maybe that's the time for them to downsize out of that, you know, platinum F-150, that's a thousand dollar payment and, you know, get them into an escape that's 500 bucks and before things really start going south on them. So, you know, you work with them and that's, uh, and they work with you typically if you're, uh, if you're truthful and upfront with what's going on. So. Yeah, it's funny because like when I I look at you and I look at like other people in this industry, you're like the opposite of a of what they would call a car salesman. You're like, because <laughs> like the stigma is like greasy car salesman. You're this like bundle of honesty and I'm trying to figure out the, like like you're sincere like and you truly care about people and that comes obviously I like I don't want to say your background but you have this wholesome background. Um, that, that like that glows from you. And I feel like the customers pick up on you like, like, Oh, I can trust this dude. Tim Hines isn't going to screw me. <laughs> well, I, you know, I really appreciate that, Matt. It's, uh, 
that's huge. I mean, when I got into this business and that whole stigma with the car sales guys, I know I would have never lasted on the retail side for more than a few months. I mean, I recognize that pretty early. Um, but I am, you know, proud of my background. My dad's a, a Lutheran minister and my mom was a saint and they raised me that way. I, I treat everybody as I would hope to be treated as best I can. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, I've been fairly successful because of it. I think, uh, at the same time, I think the cautious, I remember one of our used car managers when I first started, you know, I was trying to give somebody a deal and he's like, you have a gross allergy. And that kind of stuck with me. It's like, okay, but that's how I'd want to be treated. You know, I, I think it's fair that we make we make this much money on this deal. We don't have to make that much money. And things were different back then, especially in the used world. Now the internet has kept pricing uh, pretty consistent across the board. And you really have to, um, you know, you really got to be careful of trying to make too much money because someone out there is certainly selling it for less. So, but no, I think that's that whole um, attitude of treat everyone equally. And the best part for me is having Leanne, who's also from the same kind of background, has the exact same um, kind of sentiment about how this business should be, uh, should be handled. And that's, that's been a good compliment. So it's worked well. So, um, and I think slowly, but surely we're seeing on the retail side, things change. I, I look at companies while, well, you know, some of these bigger, um, companies that own multiple brands, they, they really lose their identity. You know, we got one big one here in the city and right away they were advertising all over the place, but now you hardly see their name anywhere. Cause they realize that, uh, that's not necessarily what people want. You don't have to be the biggest and, uh, and have everything, uh, to be the best. You've just got to be sincere and, uh, and treat everyone well. Um, and I think they're learning that lesson the hard way right now, a number of these brands. So, Hmm. Um, I, something that you said kind of like stuck out to me where it's like when you first got into this industry and that, that, um, that stigma, um, is that something that you were worried about? Like, is that something like that was really concerning you? Like, Oh man, I don't know if I can work in the car industry. How did you overcome that, that mental stigma? Uh, it was, and I, I didn't really know. I mean, I, I'd bought in a few vehicles, but mostly I, of course I had dealt with Dwayne directly on the vehicles I I bought. So I never really had to experience that whole car buyer, uh, thing, walking into a store and, you know, having to deal on the retail side. So when I watched it play out, um, I guess I quickly realized that some people were exactly what they're, you know, what the stigma was and you kind of distance yourself from them. And unfortunately in some cases they could be in, in management positions and such, but you start, you know, learning from the ones who weren't like that and, and had been successful for long periods of time and try to just, uh, you know, emulate what they're doing. Um, but I realized too, that oh, this is going to exist. This is, there's a lot of people who have gone through, you know, not just Kosh, but every, uh, every auto uh, dealership that, um, that, yeah, we're a little on the shady side and, uh, and we're looking out for number one over everything else. So it, it took me a bit to, to realize, okay, can I, can I work with some of these individuals? And, uh, amazingly enough over time they they get weeded out um and you end up with with strong people coming on board and and they stick around i you know i jokingly say to leanne that in our dealership not just on the sales side but throughout every department um there is probably six key individuals working here that if we were to take them out of the equation uh kosh would be would be in a very difficult position right away just because they're so amazing at what they do um and they're kind of the lifeblood and they keep everyone else trying to keep up with them and that's it's it's great and the sales side's no different the so many of them come and go so quickly so um okay so let, let's let, let's end on this on this last question where do you see everything going five years from now 10 years from now 15 from years from now in the automotive world 
Well, I see electric for sure um, starting to take a, a bigger, more uh, prominent role. Um, I think cars are still going to be rolling down the road for a very long time to come. Um, I think with COVID, I think our commuting, of course, is, is going to change somewhat, but I think we're still going to see strong numbers. Uh, I think you're going to see the the main brands are going to be able to adjust quickly to the electric and provide the vehicles and services that people are going to want and they're going to continue to do well. Um, so I, I don't see a drastic downturn, much like the turnover from VHS to DVD. I think it's going to be a little more seamless than most people think. Um, I won't lie. I see Tesla's stock numbers and I shake my head going, that's not right. There's something very wrong there. But then again, I, I look at the tech industry and, and wonder how the other guys, you know, how Amazon and these guys got that big as well. Um, so maybe they're onto something, but I don't think so. Toyota's still moving a lot more product than they are. Uh, as is Ford. So um, we'll watch electric kind of pick up and and see what the next thing to come down the the pike is. Uh, the thing that alarms me is just how expensive the product's getting. Every time uh, Ford, you know, does a, a rebrand or not rebrand, but a, a refresh on a vehicle, you know, this will be the F-150s uh, fall for the 2021s. It's going to be completely redone. You see a significant price jump, uh, you know, 10 to 15%. And, you know, we're, we're selling pickups now for, in some cases, $100,000. Uh, and that's just an awful lot of money. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, demand is going to drive it. So we'll see where that goes. But uh, and see yeah. how electric goes, yeah. It might open new industries. Um, I agree, like, the the cost of the product is 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 pricing people out, especially, like, um, the retail side of the business with, like, Ford. Uh, but I can, I can see um, other industries pop up, like, subscription models for people who can't actually afford a new vehicle. And then that actually might bleed into leasing. That's probably where you'll end up going, Tim. Yeah, no, I think you will see some more of that. And leasing is going to be around for a while. Um, you talk to a lot of people and they're kind of like, well, the, the youth of today, they're going to turn their back on cars. I disagree with that. I've got a 20-year-old and a one that just turned 16 that's just trying to get his license, uh, failed his <laughs> first run. But uh, he's they're excited about getting vehicles. So I, yeah. I don't see that changing, right? Um, they're going to be driving cars that are far less money than a brand new vehicle, but they are still excited about it. And I, again, I don't see it changing and, and turning off uh, you know, that quickly. So uh, I guess time will tell. But I like the concern that you raise, like the accessibility, which is money, right? It's like, yeah. how much money do you need to make in order to afford a new pickup truck? And like right now, you're saying like a payment is uh, like a platinum is a thousand bucks. What happens when that vehicle becomes like 150K? Well, that's the thing. When I started even 15 years ago, it'd be rare to see one that was more than probably, you know, $70,000 MSRP. And now they're, you know, 105. You just kind of go, wow, that's not in that long a time frame to see that kind of increase. So um, we'll see it. I think part of the... Sorry, I had another person come on the podcast and say that um, they can see like a, a subscription model rise up. And then talking to you, Tim, like, because you're in leasing... And to kind of hear you, like, you're not saying the same thing, but I can pick up pieces from your conversation, from our conversation that echoes his sentiment, um, which I find super interesting that I can actually see leasing um, mutate into some kind of subscription or leasing still exists, but then have this new sub business of subscription come up for younger people who can't afford the product. Yeah, I agree. I think the one of the determining factors is going to be the legalities of uh, the insurance and such. People don't realize we have to deal with insurance companies all day, every day, um, because, of course, these vehicles have to be properly insured that we're leasing. We're the owners. Uh, the leases are, uh, are basically just leasing them from us, of course. So we need to make sure this insurance is all in, in place. 
Um, and that's going to be the, the key there because it's, uh, insurance is getting more and more rigid instead of more relaxed. Um, it's right now it's watching that industry. I'm curious to see how they're going to embrace subscription and stuff like that because, um, well, we see it with, with, um, Lyft and everyone else now, like with the drivers, are they employees or what are they? It's kind of like that in the insurance side as well. Who's going to be okay. You know, how many people do we have to have to have insurance on this thing? Is it just going to be one blanket and how do we get that paid? That sort of thing. So that's going to be a real determining factor in uh, subscription service in the automotive sector for sure. Um, I think we'll end on that note. Excellent. Tim, thank you for doing this. No, thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure. Take All care. right, Tim. All right. Thanks. Peace, everybody. Thank